Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Since it's turning cold, I thought I'd do a winter sermon. (laughs) If there is one point where we can say eternity intersected time, so that in this moment in time, that it's forever weighted with eternity, with the life of God. Certainly in the life of Christ, we would say that. The cross, the life of Christ, the resurrection. If there is such a moment, then why not a similar significance interwoven throughout life? And we can see this in the New Testament, certainly in the events of the Gospels, the events of Acts, and even in the smallest events in the epistles, they take on a new significance. One of the most famous sermons, and I'm going to weave this through what I'm saying today, is a man named Edward McCartney, Clarence Edward McCartney. And the name of his sermon was, Come Before Winter. And it's taken, if you want to turn to Second Timothy chapter 4, he puts together a series of verses here, but we can read in verse 9, Paul is writing to Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly. Paul is in prison. It's getting cold. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Do your best to get here before winter. It's probably about October. McCartney preached this sermon in 1915 and people responded to it so well that they had a board meeting right after church. I've never had this problem, but uh, they, uh, <laughs> they said this sermon was so good, they wanted him to preach it every year. The sermon come before winter. So he pre- repeated it for the rest of his ministry, some 40 years. And I think part of the remarkable nature of the sermon is the significance it finds in what we might consider of almost no importance. So I'm going to take parts of his sermon, but I'm going a different direction with it. And to say, here is this little insignificant verse. Bring me my cloak. Bring me my parchments. Come before winter. He tells Timothy that he wants him to come and be with him there in Rome. He is to stop at Troas. He's to pick up his books. Of course, Paul is a scholar. He's writing these are the parchments, probably leather manuscripts. He's to bring the cloak, too, which Paul had left at the house of Carpus. I suppose you could do a whole sermon just on the robe. What a robe the church would weave for Paul today if it had the opportunity. But this is the only robe that Paul possesses. And it has been wet with the brine of the Mediterranean, white with the snows of Galatia, yellow with the dust of the Ignatian Way, and of course crimson with blood because of the wounds that Paul bore for Christ's sake. And it's getting cold and the summer is waning and Paul wants his robe to keep him warm. And Paul's words to Timothy are tinged with a world of meaning. An enchantment, I believe, that we are to take from 
the life of Christ this week for my birthday. I treated myself. One of my good friends is Jason Rodenbeck, and Jason and I were discussing, and we were just talking about, you know, here I am uh, at uh, the end of my life, one might think, uh, uh, and looking back and thinking about, well, what, what is it? You know, what did it mean? We talked, and I began to tell him stories from my life that my mother was the captain of a shrimp boat in Mississippi. And began, he began to doubt my stories, actually. He began to question whether these were true. And I realized that we weave meaning into our lives. We can either see that meaning there, or we cannot. And so here in this passage, a cloak, an object, an event in our own lives, it may bear a profound significance. I suppose I was about four years old, five years old, that we moved to Arizona, and my father would build the Grand Canyon Dam, and that's the way I thought of it at that age. I wasn't clear whether anybody was going to help him or not. And I remember Dad wore a hard hat, and he had a lunch pail and a thermos that went into that lunch pail, and this is one of my earliest memories. I received a present. It must have been for my, my fifth birthday, I think. And they got me a little miniature version of a lunch pail. And you open up, there's a little thermos in there. If you remember the story about the newspaper publisher, you know, the great secret in his life was Rosebud. You know, everybody wondered. That was his last words, Rosebud. And of course, Rosebud was a sled that he had as a child. C.S. Lewis describes that as a child he and his brother they made a little garden but it was just a little garden in a dish covered in green and they populated it. He says it's actually from that little garden that his stories about a magical land Narnia would spring. Most of all though Paul wants Timothy to bring himself he says, do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. And then just before the close of the letter, we get the words, you know, come before winter. Why winter? When winter sets in, the season for navigation on the Mediterranean is dangerous and ships will no longer venture out to sea. How dangerous it was, of course, is in the story of Paul's shipwreck. As a child, we moved to Biloxi, Mississippi. I'm going to tell you the story of my, my mother, the shrimp boat captain. We were going on vacation. My dad said we're going on vacation. Why we stayed four years on vacation, I'll never know. But, but he left us down there in Biloxi at the Everbreeze Trailer Court. And Hinkle, who was a friend of the family, they owned a cypress shrimp trawler named Shirley. And my mother hired a crew. She became the captain of this shrimp boat. It was built in 1928, so it was already in this period, 1958, 1959. It was already an ancient ship, or an ancient boat. And so they hired an Air Force guy named Jim Slayton. He understood the engine. He would nurse it along. And then they hired a first mate. His name was Joe D. Joe D. was a very religious man, my father said, that on every important occasion he would cross himself. My mother said he must have double-crossed when he stole the tools and the catch from the, the Shirley. My memory, though, that there were high winds and, of course, there were hurricanes. 
And I remember the trailer that we lived in just being beaten and tossed by the winds there. I think it was God's providence that in the year 1959, the hurricane that came through, the Shirley ran aground off uh, the coast in Gulfport and it sank. That probably kept the family from going bankrupt from Joe D. stealing the, the catch and the tools. If Timothy waits until winter, he will have to wait until spring and Paul has a premonition that he will not last out the winter. He says, the time of my departure is at hand. I imagine that Timothy did not wait a single day when he received this letter from Paul. Timothy's at Ephesus, and so he started out, I imagine, for Troas. He would have stopped and picked up the books and the old cloak in the house of Carpus, and then sailed past Samothrace to Neapolis, and thence to the Ignatian Way across the plains of Philippi, and through Macedonia to the Adriatic, where he took ship to Brundisium and then to the Appian Way, to Rome. And he would have found Paul in prison there. I imagine that Timothy, being his secretary, his amanuensis, would read to him from the Bible, which would have been the Old Testament. He wrote his last letters there in Rome. And I imagine that Timothy walked with him to the place of execution, near the pyramid of Cestius, and saw him receive the crown of glory. We can read the weight of eternity into time, or we can drain it of all significance. A friend, a moment in time, can awaken us to eternity. I believe also that we can miss heaven's gate, not just eternally, but in the moment. I have vivid memories as a child when I think, the heavens opened for me when I first became aware of a spiritual reality. At age seven, I acquired a beagle who was my hound of heaven. My father was running for mayor in a little town in Kansas. He was running on the promise he would close down all the gambling in the town, which he did, and it nearly cost him his life because the people that elected him didn't know he meant their gambling. Uh, <laughs> the arch villain in town was a guy named Ed Thompson and Ed actually ran campaigns all over the state of Kansas my father was down in the basement printing anti-Ed Thompson literature and about midnight there was a knock on the door and it was Ed Thompson my father was about 5'4", five, 5'5", five, five. he's not very tall Ed Thompson was 6'3", 6'4", maybe weighed a couple hundred pounds. Big guy, huge guy. But strangely enough, when he greeted him at the door, he said, well, Vern, I, I think you've got a great idea here. And he actually went down in the basement and helped him write more anti-Ed Thompson literature. He ran my dad's campaign and he won. I'm telling you all this because the Beagle was Ed Thompson's Beagle, and it had the, many of the characteristics of Ed Thompson. And I remember one of my earliest memories was going downtown to meet Ed. And my father and I were going to have a meeting, a very important meeting. I was like seven years old, so I was feeling quite important that we were having a special meeting. And the meeting was about Mr. McGee, the Beagle. 
And for some reason, Mr. McGee wanted to abandon political life. And he required a country home, and my father had volunteered me. And I remember Ed and I, it's just a simple thing. We were out walking. He was introducing me to the dog, and the dog began to eat the grass, as dogs will do. But I'd never seen a dog do that. And Ed explained to me, he said, oh yeah, that's, that's their, their medicine. Just a simple occasion, a simple meeting. Maybe one of my earliest memories, though, a kind of living magic when I met that dog. And Mr. McGee was a kind of magic dog. When he would come into the house, he would politely wipe his feet. He was trained. He had been to college, I don't know, dog college of some kind. Uh, he could open his own cans of dog's food. And this dog became the center of my life. We lived in the country. There were no other children around. And I remember a morning, we had a, a long morning, it must, in my mind it was ours, but we got a rabbit caught in a pipe, a, a loose pipe. And Mr. McGee was at this end, and I was at this end. And I was trying to get the rabbit to come to me so Mr. McGee would not eat the rabbit, because I knew he would. And I don't know how long we spent, but eventually I grabbed the rabbit's ears and jerked him out. And I took that rabbit home. I was holding him up. My mother says she remembered me coming home that morning saying, this, this one's mine, Mr. McGee. This one's mine. I don't know. Something happened that morning. One of the things that happened, I think Mr. McGee learned some sort of lesson. Soon after that, he came, and you, you're not going to believe this part of the story, but he came with a baby rabbit in his mouth, completely unharmed and set the rabbit down at my feet. And by the way, meanwhile, he let my other rabbit go. So The patterns of memory I have with this dog are tinged with a deep spiritual sensibility. Because my first great trauma and my first religious experience, actually prayer, occurred when Mr. McGee disappeared. I think for the first time, I was aware of another world, another higher being. When a man enters the straits of life, he is fortunate if he has a few friends upon whom he can count to the uttermost. I think Paul had three friends when he's in prison. At least that's what he says here in Timothy. The first we don't need to mention, the one who would be the friend of every man, the friend who laid down his life for us all. The beloved physician, as Paul will refer to Luke, is with him. He says, only Luke is with me. And the third of these friends, of course, is the Lyconian youth named Timothy, who's half Greek, half Jew, whom Paul affectionately called my son in the faith. And we know when Paul had been stoned by the mob at Lystra in the highlands of Asia Minor and was dragged out of the city gates and left for dead, that Timothy was there. When the night had come, maybe Timothy went out. You know, the mob had left, had subsided. Timothy might have gone out and searched among the stones and found the wounded, bleeding body of Paul and helped him put his arm around his neck, wiped the blood stains from his face, poured the cordial down his lips, and then took him home to the house of his godly grandmother, Lois, and his pious mother, Eunice. If you form a friendship in a shipwreck, in a time of trauma, 
You never forget the friend. The hammer of adversity, I think, just welds our hearts together in an indissoluble amalgamation. And Paul and Timothy had that relationship. Each had born together a period of adversity. I believe there was no one that Paul felt closer to than his son in the faith, Timothy. He says, before winter or never, Timothy, Jesus himself says, the poor always you have with you, but me you have not always. And this was when Mary's costly gift was given, the beautiful gift of ointment that Judas said might have been expended on behalf of the poor. Me you have not always, but isn't that true of all of our friends? In the last few years, Faith and I have found true friends. Those who would come to us in our moment of need, and we have understood that not everyone who says they are the Lord's workers are in fact on the side of God. Those who would shipwreck us may be among those who call out the name of Jesus. Paul says, Demas has left me. He's abandoned me because he loved this world. He's gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. And Titus to Dalmatia. Luke is with me. And guess what Paul says? Get Mark. Bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. We cannot name them now, but next winter we shall know their names. Those who have visited in our time of need, those who have bought a warm cloak, a warm meal, a time of friendship, financial support. Think of Jesus here, twice coming to the sleeping disciples, whom he had asked to watch with him in the garden. And Christ awakened them and said with surprise, What, could you not watch with me one hour? When he came the third time and found them sleeping, he looked sadly down upon them and said, Sleep on now and take your rest. And one of those three, James, was the first of the twelve apostles to die for Christ and seal his faith with his heart's blood. Another was John, who was to suffer imprisonment for the sake of Christ on the isle called Patmos. And Peter, of course, was to be crucified for his sake. But never again could those three sleeping disciples ever watch Jesus in his hour and sit with him in his hour of agony. That opportunity was gone forever. You say when you hear that a friend has gone, why it cannot be possible. I saw him only yesterday. Yes, you saw him there, but you will never see him again. You say you intended to do this or to speak this word or appreciation or amendment or show this act of kindness. But now the vacant chair, the unlifted book, the empty place will speak to you with a reproach that your heart can only endure. Sleep on now and take your rest. Sleep forever. I suppose I was about seven years old. We always lived on airports. And in these airports, I was out wandering around and I wandered into a huge hangar. And in this hangar, there was this huge pile of flowers. But they were separated out. There were the stems, there were the leaves, and then there were the buds of the flower. And behind the flowers, there was an old woman. 
And she was sitting and she would take one, the stem, the leaves. They were plastic. And she was building flowers. It was the strangest thing. I didn't know this woman was out there in this hangar in this airport. And so I walked up to her and asked if I could help. And she invited me. She said, yeah. And I, I, maybe it was the first job I ever had, building flowers. And I will always remember her small kindnesses. I would go back and help her on a regular basis. The quiet conversations. She would pay me in ice cream. It was the first ice cream sandwich I ever tasted. It was the most delicious thing I'd ever had. I think about my time as a child in Texas, hours and days spent alone on the prairie. Are they empty? Are they lost? Or are they woven into my eternity? Could it be that this little piece of history, trivial, nearly nonsensical, the days that we all pass through, they bear meaning. Isn't the world and our passage through it somehow enchanted? Is there one point where we can say, here eternity intersected with time, so that this moment is weighted forever as part of the life of God, and now it pervades all things? Come before winter, come before the haze of end in summer has faded from the fields, come before the November wind strips the leaves from the trees and sends them whirling over the fields, come before the snow lies on the uplands and the meadow brook is turned to ice, come before the heart is cold, come before desire has failed, Come before life is over and your probation ended, and you stand before God to give an account of the use you have made of the opportunities that in his grace he has granted you. What weight does any of our history, any of our lives bear, and what dignity? I believe we're to be about creating, constructing, weaving eternity throughout the moments of our time. We're not simply the passive recipients of some divine future presence, but I believe we're the conduits of eternal purpose here and now as co-creators. The world enchanted by eternity or left uncreated, unmade, unfulfilled as part of the weight borne in the responsibility of the Imago Dei, being created in God's image. Do your best to come to me quickly. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Do your best to come before winter. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website 
at forgingplowshares.org.